0: Welcome, welcome once again to the Science of the Covenant podcast. Before we get started, just one few things I want to say. If you're new to the podcast, you may hear words like Yahuwah, Yahusha, and you may be wondering what are these words, or even Elohim, what are these words referring to? When you hear us say Yahuwah or Yah means our almighty God in heaven, you hear us say Yahusha. It means we are speaking of what you know of in your King James Bible as Jesus. And when we say Elohim, that's just a Hebrew name for God. So if you hear these terms, that's what we are talking about. So before I start, I always like to begin by giving praises to our King and our Elohim by saying hallelujah, hallelujah. All praises to Yahuwah and his son, Yahushua, the Hamashiach, who came and died for our sins so that we may have a chance at eternal life. I'm Boyce Washington, and on the other side of me is Pastor Richard Washington, and we say Shabbat Shalom to our listeners. We hope that you enjoy our weekly podcast as we study Yah's Torah, his statutes, his commandments, and other principles in the Bible. So do you have your Bibles ready, your notebook, your computer, your tablet, whatever you need as we begin our study? So Pastor, what are we going to be studying today?
1: All right. Thank you very much, boys. What we want to look at is a continuation of the marital covenant that he has made with his children. And we started uh, last evening or last Shabbat, and we were talking about the labor of brass, and we want to continue with that study. So I want you to turn immediately with me to Exodus chapter 38, and we want to look at verse number 8, and it reads... Exodus 38, verse 8 says, And he made the labor of brass, and the foot of it of brass, and of the looking glasses of the women assembling, which assembled at the door of the tabernacle of the congregation. And we were looking at some of the symbolisms uh, in this particular passage, and what we discovered was that this has a correspondence with the marriage covenant, that Elohim made with his children. So what we want to look at here in this passage is what we consider the marital link to the brass. In other words we want to see how the marriage is linked to the brass. So we entitled this the marital link to the brass. As we pointed out in the symbolism significance the brass is representative of suffering and pain. And what we would notice in scripture is that the use of the word for brass is also interchangeable with bronze and copper. However, our concern isn't with so much the terminology of whether we are dealing with brass, bronze, or copper, but rather what makes it associated To suffering and pain. So, we want to see how brass, copper, or bronze is associated with pain. Now, according to the scriptures, we read where fetters were used to bound prisoners or hold in captivity those of whom were their captors. So, when somebody captured someone, they would often put them in fetters of brass. And there are a number of scriptural passages which bear witness to this fact. And you can find this in Judges chapter 16, verse 21. And you can also find it in 2 Kings 25, 7. And there's a number of other places, but those are two of the references that show you how they bound individuals with brass chains or brass fetters and the brass fetters were to bound them. To be bound with fetters was generally a painful experience causing those who were bound by them to suffer. Consequently, one can observe how brass became associated with suffering and pain. So when you put those fetters on, or they put them on you, it was often... uh, causing pain and excruciating agony. And so brass fetters became associated with pain. Interestingly, when we observe both the mosaic and the Solomic edifices, the brass or the bronze was primarily in the court of their sanctuaries. In the sanctuary and the temple, was where the gold primarily was. So when you study Solomon's temple and you study the tabernacle that Moses had erected, you'll find in both of those that most of your gold is located right there in the sanctuary. But when you get into the courts of these sanctuaries, they primarily had brass. By the brass being in the court, bespeaks the fact that Like as the labor on this earth is where Yeshua experienced the womb and the tomb, even so it was here on this earth that he also experienced the suffering and his pain and agony. Now you notice they had two pieces of furniture in the court of the sanctuary, and that was the labor and that was the altar the altar was where the sacrifice was and the labor was where they washed. Now these two pieces of furniture, they were made of brass. Now what we notice is, is that not in heaven, but right here on earth is where Yeshua's baptism and his death took place on this earth, not in heaven. It was on this earth. Now, If we want to turn to, in the chapter of John, we want to turn to the Gospel of John, and in the Gospel of John, we want to look at the third chapter, John chapter 3, and here we read uh, what Yeshua said uh, here in John chapter 3 and verse 14 in this dialogue with Yeshua and Nicodemus, and he says in verse 14, And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up. And verse 15 says that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have eternal life. Now, we know that when he he was talking about this particular passage, Yeshua was referring to the book of Numbers. And when we read in the book of Numbers, in chapter twenty-one, what we notice here, in chapter twenty-one, and we are looking at verse number nineteen. And here's what it says. The Bible says here in in Numbers, and we're looking at verse twenty-one. And here in this particular passage, Yeshua. Was refer- referring to uh, this passage, uh, and I well not nineteen, but we want verse nine and verse nine. So here we look in Numbers chapter twenty-one, verse nine says, and Moses made a serpent of brass and put it upon a pole, and it came to pass that if a serpent had bitten any man, when he had beheld the serpent of brass, he lived. So when Yeshua was talking to Nicodemus, he said, as that serpent was lifted up, he said, I'm going to be lifted up on the cross. And we noticed that the serpent was made out of brass and the people, they were suffering. So we see that brass has a significance of suffering. And when they looked at that brass serpent on the pole in the Old Testament, it says when they look, even though they have been bitten by the venom uh, and had the venom of this." of of the serpent in them, when they looked and saw that brazen serpent on the pole, the Bible said they lived. And so Yeshua is making a comparison of that brazen serpent on on that pole with his being lifted up on the cross, that all of us who look to him, we can find salvation. So here we see in this scenario that the brazen serpent would be equated to our Messiah being lifted up upon a cross as the serpent was lifted up on a pole. Thus, those who looked upon the brazen serpent were saved. Even so, are we saved as we look upon Yeshua, dying in pain and agony on the tree for us. Now, what we want to notice also in conjunction with the marriage and suffering So when we look at that, we see that when we talk about brass, we're talking about suffering. And so when we look at the braids and labor, we must be able to see if it's made out of brass, it has some suffering uh, uh, attached to it. It has an association with pain and suffering. So now when we turn to the Gospel of John, in the Gospel of John, chapter 2, and here it reads in verse 7, it says... Yeshua said unto them fill the water pots with water and they filled them up to the brim and he saith unto them draw out now and bear unto the governor of the feast and they bear it so now what we're looking at in this particular passage just as the stone water pots containing water that was turned into wine we see a parallel of this passage in the labor. As we explore this area of our study, we want to be cognizant of two factors which correlate a wedding to the labor. The first factor is the salvational factor. So when we look at the salvational factor, what we notice in the words of Yeshua when he And his disciples came to the wedding of Cana, and his mother Mary was in attendance. And his mother said unto him, They have no wine. And immediately Yeshua responded by saying, My hour has not yet come. Now, why would he make such a statement as this, My hour is not yet come? So when we look at verse 4, of John 2 4, he's talking about his hour. Mary was looking for him to help him with the wine, and he says, My hour has not yet come. So, first we ask ourselves, What hour is he referring to? He is speaking concerning the hour of his crucifixion, in which he would be lifted up on the tree, just like that serpent, to die for his people, to give them salvation, just as the brazen serpent gave salvation to those in the camp of Israel, salvation. To those who looked upon it by faith, his hour was that of his crucifixion. So when he told Mary, my hour has not come, he was talking about the hour of his crucifixion. Nevertheless, in spite of his hour not yet having come, he told them to fill the water pots with water and in so doing he told them to draw out and bear unto the governor of the feast and when the governor and when the governor had tasted the water that was made wine he said to them that they had kept the best wine until now so here we see the stone water pots acting as a labor containing water and the water was turned into wine by Yeshua. Herein do we see a parallel of the water in the labor of the sanctuary, and when the priests would wash off the blood of the animal sacrifices, the red coloration of the water would appear as red wine. We are also told in Ephesians by the Apostle Paul and here we let us turn to Ephesians. And in Ephesians, we want to look at chapter chapter 5. In Ephesians chapter 5, here in verse 25, what the Apostle Paul says. Here the Apostle Paul says in verse 25 of Ephesians chapter 5 and verse 25. He said, Husbands, love your wives, even as the Messiah also loved. the the church or the assembly, and he gave himself for it. So the apostle Paul says, as the Messiah also loved the assembly and he gave himself for it, the giving of himself was the death he would die in the shedding of his blood for his bride, his church. The crucifixion of our Messiah was a wedding ceremony to embrace his woman, the church. He loved her, he died for her, and he wanted to be married back to her. And the crucifixion was the way to do this. The crucifixion is all about Yeshua's atonement for us. What we understand about atonement is that in the Old Testament, it is spoken of as a covering from the Hebrew word kippurim, K-I-P-P-U-R-I-M, kippurim. However, in the New Testament, the word used for atonement is propitiation, p r o p i t i a t i o n, and it means what appeases, what appeases. In other words, an atonement in both the Hebrew and the Greek is an act which covers our life of sin, and because our sins are covered, it appeases Yehovah. The Father and his people are now united to him by the blood of his Son, which is in the pure life of Yehovah. So, Yeshua's blood was pure, which represents a pure life. When we are in union with our Creator, this makes the sinner at one minute. You see, that word at one minute means atonement. That's how you spell atonement. A-T-O-N-E-M-E-N-T, at one minute. So when we are atoned for, it brings us back at one minute with Elohim at a wedding after the bridal, the bridegroom and the bride both take, accept and agree to the vows and the wedding vows are that we keep his covenant. And when we agree to that covenant, after taking the vows, Th- they then embrace and kiss. So, when the bride and the bridegroom kisses, the kiss symbolizes a unity and a oneness of the marital couple. This oneness is the atonement of the Messiah and his bride. The crucifixion is Yah's kiss in approval of his people having their sins covered, and he is satisfied with them. He, he, he is appeased. So when Yeshua died on Calvary, out on Golgotha, we find that Elohim was appeased, and not only was he appeased, he, he a, he a but we find that all of our sins have been covered. So the crucifixion of Yeshua, our Messiah, was the marriage ceremony, and he told his disciples prior to his crucifixion that the fruit of the vine, which is the grape juice, which comes from it, would represent His blood. In Matthew's chapter 26 and verses 27 and 28, it speaks about Him telling His disciples that when they take this fruit of the vine, it would represent the blood of the new covenant. Moreover, we read in in, in Corinthians. The 11th chapter, let us turn to Corinthians, 1 Corinthians, that is, 11th chapter, and verse 25 and following. It says, After the same manner also he took the cup, and when he had supped, saying, This cup is the New Testament in my blood. This do ye as often as ye drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as ye eat this bread and drink this cup, you do show forth Yehoah's death till he comes. Wherefore, whosoever shall eat this bread and drink this cup of Jehovah unworthily shall be guilty of the body and the blood of Jehovah. So what we are seeing here, Paul tells us that the drinking of the cup, which is the grape juice, would be in remembrance of him. For he says, he, the drinking of this cup, would keep alive his death until he comes. So if he's keeping alive his death until he comes, he was trying to say that his death was his marriage to his people. So as long as we were drinking the grape juice at Passover, he was saying, you keep the marriage alive until he comes. Furthermore, Yeshua said to his disciples concerning the fruit of the vine that he would not drink of it until it was new in the kingdom of his father. And then John in the book of Revelation tells us that the bride of Yeshua, his people, has made herself ready and now she shall take part in the marriage of the lamb. So when we turn to Revelation chapter 19, it talks about the bride of Yeshua. And so when he speaks about the bride of Monsieur, here in verse 7, it says, it speaks about in Revelation 19 7, it says, let us be glad and rejoice and give honor to him, for the marriage of the Lamb has come and his wife has made herself ready. Okay, so if he, he says, the marriage of the Lamb. And then he goes on in, in verse 9 of the 19th chapter of Revelation. And he said unto me, write, blessed are they which are called unto the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he saith unto me, these are the true saints of Elohim. So in other words, he's saying the bride was ready. And when the bride was ready, she went into the marriage supper of, of the Lamb. So if she went to the marriage supper of the Lamb, then what we are experiencing is this marriage supper of the Lamb is none other but the continuation of his crucifixion and death on Golgotha. On Golgotha, the marriage of the bride and the bridegroom took place now in the kingdom of the Father. The celebration of the crucifixion takes place here. This long awaited date was what Yeshua referred to his disciples when he said, I will not drink henceforth of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my father's kingdom. Thus he was speaking prophetically of the marriage supper of the lamb spoken of here in the book of Revelation 19:7 and 9. Consequently We can see that the crucifixion was a ceremonial suffering and death of our Messiah, and the marriage supper of the Lamb is a celebration of that death. Yes, the crucifixion was the marriage of our Savior to his people, his bride, and the marriage supper of the Lamb was the wedding when he came for his people And when they are in heaven with him, the marriage that had taken place at Golgotha now experiences the celebration at the marriage supper of the Lamb who gave his blood for us. And with his redemptive blood, he had promised that he would drink this wine in the Passover service in the heavens above. Let us pray. Eternal Father, we thank you again for your word, and for the marriage that you gave us on the cross to redeem us to yourself. In Yeshua's name, we do ask it. Amen and amen. Amen.
0: So it's only one question. Uh, you stated that the brass was significance of suffering, and I noticed that, you know, how you said the Moses had to make the the representation of the servant out of brass. And we also, it describes Yahuwah and his son as being brass burnt in fire. And no I wonder is there any correlation between brass and all of that?
1: Yes, yes. I'm glad you mentioned that. Uh you may want to hold on to that question, but I'm going to answer you now. Mm-hmm. Now if you remember uh in the sanctuary that the labor had a foot. You remember the foot? Mm-hmm. It was a it was a foot that was attached to hold up the, the labor. Okay, now that foot that held up the labor, it was also made out of brass. So what we see is that when Yeshua was, uh, according to uh, the book of Genesis, when it talks about in 315, that the serpent would uh, bruise his feet, but he would bruise the serpent's head. Mm-hmm. Again, you see that his feet was being bruised by Satan, which means... He was causing him to walk in suffering. He was causing the suffering and the pain of Yeshua's feet, okay, which is a symbol of the fact that he was trying to cripple him not to walk the plan of salvation, which he's trying to do to us. So when you read in the book of Revelation in the first chapter when it says that his feet was of brass, it's talking somewhat about the fact that these feet of brass were the feet that walked down here on this earth, and those were the feet. That traveled this earth and is suffered for us in order to walk the plan of salvation.
0: All righty. Now we go on to our next segment. Up next is Let's Talk About That. So, in today's segment of uh, Let's Talk About That, I kind of want to speak on the Apocrypha books because more and more I'm hearing more people talk about them and they are, a lot of people are reading them. The first book I want. Um, before I get into that, I want to read uh, Deuteronomy chapter four verse two. Again, that's Deuteronomy chapter four verse two, and it reads: "Ye shall not add unto the word which I command you, neither shall ye diminish out from it, that ye may guard the commandments of Yahuwah Elohim which I command you." So, my question is today: uh, Are the apocryphal books valid? And should they really be part of scripture? Because when we know in the King James eleven sixteen eleven Bible that they were in there and it's been noted that the apocryphal books were in scripture up until around about, I believe it was 1885. So I'm just wondering, uh, Pastor, should we be reading them? And is it possible that
1: these books are tied to scripture? Well, you know, it's interesting that you asked the question, should we be reading them? And I think that's the very way that you phrase your question is very important. You said, should we be reading them? Okay, let's look at it from this standpoint. Now, if those books were one time a part of the Bible, and I believe it was the Douay Bible that was put out by the Catholics. They not only had what we call the King James Version, but they had the, the uh, Parker for books as well. Mm-hmm. But for some reason, as time went on, they saw fit to take those books from there. Mm-hmm. Now, I can only say this, is that if they saw fit to take them out, why did they want to take them out? Mm-hmm. Well, it is because they read the books, right? Mm -hmm. And so you ask the question, should we read them? Mm -hmm. So if they made the decision by reading them to take them out, then should not we also have the privilege of reading the books for ourselves and see whether we want to go bad or not. Mm -hmm. If they read it, why would they stop us from reading? True. And why would they take them out? They should give them to us. But we must understand also that when you study Catholicism, Catholicism is a type of religion that they depend upon the priest's their priests to interpret the Bible for them. Mm -hmm. And when the, when the priest said you don't study a certain thing, they couldn't study it. But if they, they had a question about the scriptures, they had to get the interpretation from their Mm priests. And this is why Martin Luther started the reformation is because he told the Catholic church and told the Pope and and the bishops that we should be able to read the scriptures for ourselves. Mm -hmm. And they questioned him on that. And he, they said only the priests could read the Scriptures. Mm-hmm. But Martin Luther, who read the Scriptures, said that we are all priests. When Yeshua died, he made us all priests. Mm-hmm. So therefore, if we are all priests, then we all can study the Scriptures. I do not have to go to you, and you don't have to come to me. I have the privilege of reading the Scriptures for myself and let the Holy Spirit work with me to draw my interpretation. So when it comes to the apocryphal books, how can I know that they are wrong or right if I don't read them? So True. if you read them and you see that it's in harmony with Elohim's will, I would say, go by it. Mm-hmm. But if it's not in harmony with Elohim's will, then I would say, uh, don't go by it. Because he said, don't add to my word. And he said, don't take away from my word. Yeah. So this would mean that even if a if a person who wrote the apocryphal books, if it wasn't under inspiration, but if he's quoting scriptural knowledge that comes from the Torah, I would say follow it. But if he's not quoting from what he's reading in the Torah and it's not in harmony with Elohim's will, I would not follow it.
0: And you know, one last thing before we go is that, you know, when we look towards, uh, we know that us as African Americans, uh, blacks in America during slavery, they gave us the Hebrew Bible and the Hebrew, I'm not, I'm sorry, not the Hebrew Bible, but the slave Bible. And what they did, they took out a significant part of the Bible to give it to them. So we need to think of, with them taking certain things out of the Bible, is it because religions wanted us to think and follow a certain way that maybe some of these books did not fit with their narrative that these religions wanted?
1: Yeah, well, that's true to a large extent, but let's look at it also from a standpoint of the fact that uh, when they told the narrative, they wanted to tell the narrative from the standpoint that they could justify slavery. Yeah. Because when slavery came in, then uh, the slave would wonder, because many of your slaves who came over here, they were not slaves over in their own country. Yeah, they were sold into slavery. So whenever you enslaves enslave a, a, a person, then uh, your conscience have to bother you. Mm-hmm. And if your conscience bothers you, then you got to say to yourself, what justification do I have for putting these people in slavery? Yeah. So the way to get to justification and to appease their conscience was to take out all of the scriptures that talked about the inhumane treatment of slaves and only leave in there that you must obey your slave master. So if that was the only thing in there, then you would take the rest of it out so when the slave read it, he would say, "Oh, then I'm following the master's will," but that was not true. And as a result of that, what we find is that they slandered the scriptures to their own advantage.
0: All right, Pastor, can you take us to the throne in prayer?
1: Father, again, we thank you that we could talk about it, and as we continue to study the scrolls and the Torah, that we can come back to your original covenant. Now bless each one who listens and give them the prosperity that they need in health and strength to be able to do your will in Yeshua's name. We do ask it. And for his dear sake, we do pray. Amen, amen. and Amen. Amen.
0: I'm Boyce Washington. And on the other side of me is pastor Richard Washington and we are the science of a covenant. That is our podcast for this week. If you have any questions or comments, please feel free to email us at science of the covenant at gmail.com. May Yahuwah bless you and keep you until next week. Shalom.